Okay, welcome everyone to the latest session of Randos Read. Tonight we have four randos reading Atlas Shrugged, part one, chapter four, The Immovable Movers. And this is uh, the first section of this. We've got our usual crew here. Um, first section. So, oh, Greg, if we're the usual crew, does that make us non-random randos? Your regular randos? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe we're pseudo-randos. I, I think... If I'm allowed to um, uh, conflate the term, I, I, I think you can be both regular and random. Yes. Mm -hmm. If memory serves me correctly, the digits of pi successfully pass all of our statistical tests for randomness while obviously not being random. Hmm. I vaguely remember that being true. So. So maybe yeah. we're uh, maybe it's like that. Yeah, we're we're not random, but random. In any event, uh, enjoying saving the book. What's that? What if pi is the universe's random function? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Well, I don't know that that particular characteristic is in any way unique to pi. It could well be a characteristic of other irrational numbers as well. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a mathematician answered the question: Are the are the digits of pi random? To begin with, we have to be careful what we mean by random. Clearly, pi is not random in the strict sense because individual digits are certainly not random but mathematically fixed. Perhaps a better and easier question is whether pi is normal base ten. And he didn't give the answer in his headline. Yeah. But that that's the, the whole point about it. It depends you know, on what does random actually mean, and it's a surprisingly slippery question. Yeah, let's see. So, um, wow, we got like three seconds in, and I've already. I know this is like, a great. You know, com completely derailed the discussion. Well, now I have to. I have to get a good answer from a mathematician here. Pi is normal base two, but again, that's not a proof. Okay, so it's suggested, it strongly suggests that pi is normal base two. Okay, because it passes the test. All right, so um, back to the book. <laughs> In the first section, I have Diana's uh, wonderful guide here, which is great for uh, giving a quick summary of each of the sections that um, we can circle questions around on. In the first section, uh, what we have is Eddie coming back from a, uh, an unhappy meeting with United Locomotive Works. Uh, Dagny, I think. Uh, he informs Dagny. She. Yeah. Uh, no, Eddie went to the meeting and informs Dagny. Uh, of, no, that's, <laughs> not according to the text I'm looking at. Yeah, that's early. Oh, do we have a bug here? Uh, this could be a bug. Yeah, because if you remember, he, Eddie did go to a meeting with United Locomotive at the beginning in the first chapter. Oh. Yeah. But here this time it was her. But okay. Yeah. But here, here, you know, the text is, you know, she felt a dim touch of anxiety. She was back from a trip to the plant of the United Locomotive Works in New Jersey, blah blah blah. So unless Eddie has uh, undergone some kind of a sex change operation. No, no. I think a simpler explanation is that there's just a little bug in Diana's text here. <laughs> anyway, so uh Dick uh, McNamara quit. Yeah, which is that, a shock. That didn't take long, did it? No, that was boy from uh, from 
like I said, intel gathering to execution was like what, like a day? <laughs> well, I don't know. Is, is is it? Do we know this is literally the next day, or I, I'm not sure. I don't no, know that I didn't we know it. the the timing there, but certainly, you know, literarily, you know, Eddie mentions, you know, how critically important McNamara is, and you know, two pages later, he's gone. Yeah, I a part of me kind of wants Eddie to put a couple things together there and go, God, you know, I just mentioned that to this this guy yeah. that I don't even know the name of, and suddenly, yeah, yeah, but again, you we don't actually know the timing. This might be a week oh, yeah. later. Yeah. yeah it, it soon. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So th uh, then that evening, uh, Dagny walks through the streets of New York, seeking greatness, but finding only degradation. She returns home to listen to the music of Richard Halley, reflecting on the story of his struggle, success and disappearance. Yeah. I'm yeah. noticing I a pattern that here. The, the whole you know, discussion of, you know, Dagny looking at cultural artifacts was kind of interesting. It, mm -hmm. It borders on, you know, the the Gramscian style analysis of, uh, you know, the interaction between culture and politics. Although in this case, it's more an interaction between culture and individual psychology. Yeah, but uh, uh, it, it is showing the prominence, uh, the, the rise of the, the, those forms of art. Well, not merely the prominence or, of, but what I thought was interesting there is an, an illustration of the Gramscian thesis, because what you have here is Dagny, who is a consummate capitalist, having the energy leached out of her psychologically by her immersion in a culture that is built on an antithetical set of moral political values. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Rand is, is, laying out here a link between you know culture and politics and between culture and ethics uh in the sense that you know a certain cultural environment is supportive of a certain kind of you know ethics a certain kind of individual psychology a certain kind of value complex and therefore a certain kind of political system mm -hmm. it's it's all it's all integrated together, uh, you know, which is a lesson that it took the conservatives 50 years at least to figure out from when this book was published. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> speaking of which, did you guys uh, notice the, the, the little news story of uh, Ben Shapiro, arch conservative, is the top rapper in the business this week? He has a number one billboard hit as a rapper. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He, he teamed up with a, an independent, I guess, uh, so it's a bit secondhand, but there's a, apparently a McDonald or something like that. I can't remember his name. Uh, he's an independent rapper, the biggest one. He teamed up with him and did about 30 seconds of laying down some, some lines. And uh, the whole thing is very anti-woke. And he, he went to town on it. The facts don't care about your feelings kind of a kind of thing. And he actually, he, he did pretty well. Uh, I, I saw a couple of reaction clips from people who are connoisseurs of the genre and they lost their shit. <laughs> it was really funny. So he's, uh, he's, he's trolling the culture. He's, yeah. he's doing exactly that. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't. I kind of react to Shapiro sort of the way I react to Trump. I, I don't agree with him, but I kind of enjoy the show. Um, I, I appreciated his effort in this case. I disagree with him on a lot of things because, you know, he's a religious conservative and kind of a little bit neoconish. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't really like him. I don't really trust him. I'm not even really convinced that he's intellectually honest, but, um, but he does put on an entertaining show every now and then. Yeah. So, so as a culture jam, I was impressed. And, uh, he, it, it, it was even self-referential. He, he told, uh, apparently there's a rapping artist called Nicki Minaj. And in his lines, he said, you know, Nicki takes some notes. I just did this for the fun of it and got a number one billboard hit. <laughs> so yeah, he's uh, also famous for dishing on rap as not really thinking it's worthy of anything. And yeah, uh, I, I think he was probably helped by many years of violin lessons. So he, he really knows where the beat is. So, and he did, so, and he so like a, a, a white religious conservative with rhythm. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, now now I know this has got to be a setup. <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, there's this this thing that's going around is that uh, Ben Shapiro is probably the only rapper who raps more slowly than he talks. He, it, it was notable that he was not going at his normal speed. It, it was fine for rap, but that's not Ben's speed. No, he's not faster. He's, he talks very clipped and, and quite quite quickly, as a matter of fact. Uh, yes. He could have gone twice as fast and been perfectly legible. Yep. That, anyway. That he could have been, yes. So that was that was the... Uh, yeah. I mean, little, it, it's good to see something other than the left, you know, at least throwing punches in the cultural arena. Yeah. And I think, I think his crew there at... Um, uh, isn't his his, com his entire company is called the Daily Wire? I think. I think so. I, yeah. I think they're they've figured out that um, politics is downstream of culture, and they're really trying to make inroads there. They're doing movies and stuff. Yeah, I I thought that um, their it's TV that their announcement of that they were doing, you know, a sort of classical live action Snow White was uh, an epic piece of cultural trolling. Oh yeah, that was. I believe they actually forced action on Disney in that case because yeah, Disney changed course in response, which is it's like great, go guys. Yeah, it kind of reveals you know where the enemy's glass jaw is in that regard. You know as well. You know you can you know bitch and complain and whine as much as you want. It doesn't make a difference. But you start actually making and selling a competing product, and they start paying attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and uh, they're trying it on various fronts, but they, yeah. compared and, to and, I Hollywood, mean, they're, they're learning. They're they, they, you know, I think we talked, you know, elsewhere about, uh, I think they were the, the same studio that did uh, Lady Ballers that, you know. Oh, of, the comedy, yeah. Yeah, the comedy thing. And it sounds yeah. like they, you know, it has its moments, but they're, they're still learning their trade there. But that's yeah. fine. And the pool of talent they can draw on is, is really small because even actors who would be willing, they don't want to be blackballed in the rest of their industry. So then in, in 
that movie, they ended up doing parts themselves. Yeah. I don't know how long that's going to last. You know, Hollywood seems to be dramatically cutting down on the number of uh, productions they do. So, you know, at a certain point, you're going to have reasonably talented actors who are not going to be concerned about getting blackballed because they can't get a job in Hollywood anyway. Good point. I say uh, more power to them. It's like they, what, what they're trying to do isn't nearly as screwed up as uh, the current crew. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it's a hard line to walk between um, sort of keeping a political edge without turning into just, you know, another variety of uh, propaganda masquerading as art. I, I think uh, I'm not even sure where I think I have heard them note that they they can't make it about politics and be successful. Yeah, uh, I, I think especially in their kids content that they're trying to build up. They're, they're really just trying to make healthy, good stuff. Yeah. I mean, what they conceive of it. And I mean, yeah. I don't and you know, have a problem with ours. You know, it, it's like figuring out where you, that line is, is hard. You know, they're to, to take Lady Ballers as an example you know, which I haven't seen and, and don't particularly intend to, but there's a lot of, you know, stuff about sort of the ideology that they are poking fun at that, you know, is real and, you know, is legitimate fodder for comedy. Yeah. Look at Dave Chappelle. But, He's making money on it. Yeah. But you have to do it in a way that puts the comedy first rather than the counterweight ideological point first right because if you if you sacrifice you know humor in order to make a political point you're doing propaganda not comedy mm -hmm. uh i'm not sure i saw it i uh, i didn't focus entirely on all of it the entire time uh, but I, I did see it it was basically in 80s 90s uh, comedy. It, it mm -hmm. fit those production values and writing level. And I, I think they probably did okay for the most part on, on the, that, that aspect of the comedy. It, it, they were, they were making it funny. It wasn't, it wasn't just about scoring points. I don't yeah. think. Yeah. It, it's a, yeah. third act got a little weak. I thought Yeah, it, it it's a tricky line to cross. Yeah. And I, I didn't really look at it. I wasn't studying it that carefully. Yeah. Somebody might sometime. I don't have the energy for that. It's <laughs> yeah. It's it's an interesting thing to uh to monitor just because, you know, my my fundamental objection to sort of the woke invasion of entertainment is not that, you know, they are doing entertainment products that have an ideological edge to them or that have an ideological or value perspective on them. I mean, we're reading Atlas Shrugged, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not the, that's not the failing. Yeah. It's it like is that is, the, that is not, not the problem. Yeah. It's perfectly legitimate to do, you know, art and entertainment that has a, a philosophical or a value perspective on it. The problem is when you elevate that perspective above the integrity of the, the work of art. And it's possible to do that with any ideology. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I, well, actually, uh, that's one of the complaints about Alice Shrugged. Some, some people think it crosses some, the line. Some people I, think that. Yeah, I, I don't agree, but I understand the nature of the criticism, and to the extent that it, you know, if it did, then to that extent, that would be a real flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That said, I also understand, you know, why a person on an individual aesthetic level might find it harder to enjoy and appreciate works of art that come from a substantially different philosophical or value context. Yeah, it it's um, it would make it much easier to see that as a flaw, <clears throat> as opposed to uh, just somebody creating the world they love and being compelling about it. And it's yeah. like, well, no, you're just propagandizing I'm, I'm thinking of it now. more from the perspective of a consumer. Um, you know, to to twist us a little bit back around towards the book, metaphorically speaking, Jim Taggart <coughs> would not enjoy reading The Fountainhead. Uh, no, so that's what I was saying. Is that yeah. if the if the artist is truly just trying to build their world, and they're doing it in a compelling way, that makes it very easy for people who aren't sympathetic to that world um, to see it as just propaganda. Yeah. Well, I'm not even necessarily saying you know seeing it as just propaganda. I mean, you can look at you know, a work that comes from a very different value context. And I mean, I have this reaction to crime and punishment. It's a brilliant work of art. I'm glad I read it, but I wouldn't particularly say I enjoyed reading it and I'm not sure I'm ever going to read it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. And, and it's not because I think that it's propaganda. It's just that. No, the, no, no there's, there's many reasons to not yeah. be sympathetic to it. I was yeah, only the, saying the value that it complex it easier. To that it came from that. was just very unpleasant to me in a lot of ways, but mm -hmm. artistically it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I think we could be in violent agreement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Damn it. So uh, it's like, yeah, <laughs> you keep thinking I implied that, but I don't think I implied that. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. Uh, uh, one of Diana's questions. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, so she uh, walks through the streets seeking greatness, but finding only degradation, returns home to listen to the music of Richard Halley, reflects on the story of his struggle, success, and disappearance. And she also uh, reads about uh, Francisco D'Anconia uh, mm -hmm. returning to the city. So uh, Diana asked, why, why does Dagny seek to be a passive spectator of greatness? Why is that in, important to her? What does she find instead? Well, okay. So, talks about in some of her 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 nonfiction writing, uh, aesthetics uh, as as soul food, you might say. That uh, to see something out there that is worthy of veneration. Mm -hmm. with, well, without yeah. you having been the creator of it, it. It's the other half of the of the creative circle. Yeah, I, I'd like to be in a world that exhibits greatness. Uh, I would want to participate in that. I want to see it embodied. 
it helps you know that you're not alone. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and yeah, it's already starting to be tinged that way, where it's like, yeah, it's going to get really lonely for the uh, the people like her. Yeah, and also I think, and and there's, you know, this is maybe a little bit of a spoiler um, in the future, but there's a bit later in the book where she's asked what kinds of customers she envisions to be using the trains that she's going to run. You know, do you know, does she envision them, you know, being used by, you know, people of great productive ability who will use them to uh, bring their own efforts to an even greater height? You know, does like, she view them like as, Wyatt. Yeah. yeah, does she view them as being used by, you know, people maybe, you know, who are not great productive geniuses, but who, you know, are, you know, thought, you know, thinking, value pursuing, you know, honest people, you know, who will, you know, appreciate, you know, the effort and skill that she has put into, you know, that, you know, or does she envision them being run for the benefit of, you know, in effect, a bunch of moochers and looters. And she has very different reactions to those different prospects. Mm -hmm. So part of part of the benefit that she gets from seeing achievements by other people in the culture is the knowledge that there are other people out there of the kind that she wants to trade her own achievements with. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I'm looking a little ahead here to pick more candidates. A uh, quick review. Uh, what's the issue with McNamara's retirement? Why is this mattering to them beyond just building uh, the Rio Norte line? Well, there was no reason for it that they could see. It's, yeah, it's like in, in terms of conventional values, his decision makes no sense. His, he was, you know, the most in-demand contractor in the country. As Eddie says, you know, he walked away on a pile of contracts that were worth a literal fortune. You know, yep. so he's he's walking away from a job that he clearly loved, that he was extremely good at. He was at the, you know, I won't, won't say the peak of his success, but he was clearly extremely successful. He was making a lot of money, you know, acquiring all of the kinds of values that, you know, a person normally works their entire life to achieve. And he just walked away. Mm hmm. It's also starting to establish, you know, it's a second data point, right? It's like Owen Kellogg. Yeah, inexplicably at, saying, yep, I'm out. Not at the Anything same wrong, level, you. but, you know, Dagny's offering him, you know, he, he's a career-minded young man, you know, talented. Dagny's offering him a promotion. You know, uh, more than that, she said, to, name your price. Yeah, to, to advance, you know, a career that, you know, he had shown every sign of being passionate about, and all of a sudden... He walks away. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, so now even, we've seen this happen a couple of times. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of odd. Looking less and less like a coincidence. All right. Uh, Once hey. as happenstance, twice as coincidence, three times as enemy action. <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, what is the news about Francisco Danconia? How does Dagny react to it? I actually want to skip 
or not before we go to that yeah uh i want to ask the question why does richard halley quit when he does yeah i actually skipped over something about him well, um, kind of the same thing we've been seeing he, uh, in, in 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 all of the other quitters they're quitting at a point in well, time he, when there's a an inflection point that is going to take them they've achieved it all yeah that's going to take them further and further up and yet it's at that inflection point so, that they say well, well I'm done. unlike the others it, I, no, saw, it, I saw an I, insult in his where it's like yeah screw you you finally get it too late you know, except they didn't really get it and i mean i don't think the like with Kellogg, there wasn't an inflection point because Kellogg had made the decision to quit before he ever knew Dagny was planning on promoting him. You he know, was just identified as talented and useful and yeah. You know, so it, it's not like he had suddenly, you know, achieved this big step forward in his career and then decided to walk away. He just, he decided. And McNamara, from what little we have heard about him in the book, I mean, he's clearly very successful, but it's not like, you know, getting the Rio Norte line contract was somehow, you know, kicking his business up to the next level. He was already the most in-demand contractor in the country. So I don't really see what kind of inflection point there is, it, you know, in his career. It could be that um, um, Halley just happened to be visited with the desire to quit earlier than other candidates like him. Well, I mean, my... he's really visible. Well, my interpretation of it is, um, you know, he spent all of this time, you know, writing music, struggling in obscurity. He hits a point where he breaks through. The public is, is suddenly, you know, cheering him and, and lionizing him you know, and, and, you know, acclaiming his genius. Um, but not for the right reasons. But not for the yeah. right reasons. And that thing, you know, where, you know, after he comes out on, on the stage at the, the opera, you know, you know, his face had the quiet, earnest look of a man staring at a question. And to my mind, you know, the question, you know, I suspect he was asking is, do you really get it? Is it is it worth is it worth it? Is this worth it? No. Well, yeah. not even just is it worth it, but now you know, oh, he sorry, has the question to himself, not to them. Yeah, he he has all of you know the public is now acclaiming him. But the question is, are they acclaiming him for what he considers to be the correct reasons? Do they genuinely see in his music what he put there, and do they appreciate the thing in him? that allowed him to, to create that music. It, and it could be that in the case of his art, it, it's just too clear to him that he is, they, they are not getting it. And maybe yeah. well, when he was in I, obscurity, it was easier to take that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way this stuff is, is written out, um, you know, it's literally, you know, the quiet, earnest look of a man staring at a question followed by a bunch of quotes um, you know, from the, the musical uh, critics, you know, in effect, the culture explaining to them, you know, their understanding, you know, of him, his music, his greatness, his role in the culture. And it's very collectivistic. It's very altruistic. 
right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like the music of Richard Halley belongs to mankind. It is oh, the product yeah. and the expression of the greatness of the people, not, you know, the product and the creation of Richard Halley. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the minister who talks about that, you know, how noble it is that she, he should have endured suffering, injustice, and abuse, you know, in order to enrich the lives, you know, of, you know, the people who put him through all of that. And Halley's response to that, I mean, I think the critical response to his music intellectually answered his question. And that answer is why he retired. Because it became apparent to him that, you know, the public was never going to get it. Yeah. So maybe before he got to prominence, he had some hope. It was mm -hmm. dashed. Yeah. He saw what the culture was going to be offering him as a successful, you know, conventionally successful musician. And it was not what he had been seeking. And so he stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this one I find interesting because I think the reason he could quit is comprehensible. He's not like, you know, say McNamara in that regard. You can look at the, um, at the events and you can kind of understand why he might basically say, screw you guys, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. It's what if felt like when I was reading it. Yeah. It seems like he's one of the spontaneous quitters. Yeah, we don't actual, I mean, at this I point, we, we don't actually know that there is a distinction like that, but Howie, as presented, looks, his quitting Could be makes sense as a spontaneous action in a way that uh, Kellogg and McNamara don't. Yeah. There, there's an insult, there's something missing, there's a disconnect that you don't see in those others. Yeah, and I mean, in that regard, you could look at it as a sort of a hint about what might have led Kellogg and uh, McNamara to quit. Yeah, maybe we can't see the insult, the disconnect. Because yeah. what Halley, yeah, Halley was um, not getting what he really wanted in exchange for the music that he was creating. Uh, an offering in trade, and because he wasn't getting what he wanted, he stopped. And that raises the question, well, are these other people also stopping because they are, in some sense, not getting what they want? And what might that be, since it clearly isn't, you know, accolade for the genius of their artistic creation? Mm-hmm. All right, so pushing ahead. Yeah. Section yeah, two. That's what I had sections. on Richard Halley. No, I, 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 uh, I liked stopping there for that. Um, all right, section two. <laughs> Jim Taggart and Betty Pope arise in um, mutual contempt. Was, was You didn't have anything on uh, that brief shot of Francisco? Or? Oh, I, I didn't know how much it mattered. Um, okay, so... Uh, the well, news it, of, uh, it, it, it matters for future chapters. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's good for us to visit her 
her reaction. How did, how did she react? Well, I'm not just in her reaction, but what he's saying here, because what he is saying is, is operating at two levels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but we won't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I came here for the farce. That's yes. the last thing he said. And of course, everyone is assuming that he's talking about the divorce yeah. of, of, of the veils. Uh, I, I did like his um, refusal to meet with Jim, uh, <laughs> the, the you secretary. Bore me. Like, yeah, you bore me. Yeah, yeah he, he declined because you bore him. <laughs> oh, Francisco's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, and so Dagny's yeah. Dagny's reaction, though. Yeah. One one of the fascinating things about Francisco as you go through the novel is the fact that he basically never lies about anything. No. No, he just uh, lets people draw their own conclusions without any, uh, yeah, he, without he any input you. from him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can, you can think all sorts of goofy things and he won't correct you. So here's something that is a little bit more concrete. Through the open door of the bedroom, he heard Betty Pope washing her teeth in the bathroom beyond. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting phrase. Yeah. Is this something that maybe is a holdover from a Russian colloquialism? Could be, or maybe maybe they spoke that way you know, 70 years ago or whatever. I, I don't remember that phrase uh, I, not, ever not in, my... in any other context. No. But it did stand uh, out. Maybe mouthwash. Yeah, it's still an odd phrase. Yeah, yeah. it is very definitely uh, different. Mm -hmm. I just was curious. What I, I'm of the opinion, without any supporting evidence, of course, mm -hmm. that it may be a, a translation of a Russian colloquialism. So I can't. I've never run into. I mean, even if you go back to, uh, to you know, to the upper classes in, in Victorian England, they, they, they brush their teeth. They don't wash them. Hmm. So, just we need a linguist. And we need a Russian, a Russian, a Russian linguist. Yeah. Let's see. Ask ChatGPT. All right, so um, yeah. the uh, the scene the scene with uh, Jim and Betty is really sad. Um, they arise in mutual contempt after a night together. He receives a phone call informing him uh, that the Mexican government has nationalized the San Sebastian mines and line. I, Shocker! Uh, yeah. yeah, nobody saw that coming. Yeah, I do see this question on an English language learners forum. So, uh, oh, about washing your teeth. Yeah, it's like, is it okay to say that? Well, maybe it is. Uh, maybe maybe that's the way it is. Hmm. Uh, maybe that's the way it's verbalized in other in other languages. Does it say? Does it give you the the uh, the first language of the uh, questioner? No. Okay. 
but apparently it is something that gets debated by people who are not native English speakers. So, okay. Well, it might be that we are a completely idiosyncratic yeah. in the idea of brushing our teeth. I, I, I'm, a, I'm asking the Oracle chat GPT to see if it has any idea. Yeah, it, it, it confirms. The, the direct translation of the Russian expression for brushing your teeth would indeed be washing your teeth. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting, that one slipped through editing. Yeah, well, in particular her editing, because she was very careful about stuff like that. In, so in a lot of in ways, Spanish, French, and German, it is uh, brushing. Wait, hold, uh, hold on. In German, it's somewhat closer to washing, but still implies brushing. Uh, it's an it, objective flaw in the novel, ruined forever. Yeah, hold on. Oh, okay. In Russian, the act of cleaning one's teeth is typically referred to as blah, blah, I can't read it, which translates directly to to clean the teeth, the verb one of them, is more closely aligned with the general idea of cleaning rather than specifically brushing or washing. However, the context in which it's used clearly indicates the action of brushing one's teeth with a toothbrush, blah, blah. Huh. The term doesn't, yeah, uh, chat GPT is skeptical, but um, we can't, we wouldn't use that as an authority anyway. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure anything really follows from that anyway so yeah uh, still an interesting interesting game all right so um was i wonder if the mines and the line that were nationalized or just the line and not nope, sorry, I'm, both. Lines? I'm, I'm looping both. back around i wonder now if maybe that is because yeah, Rand's entire description of you know Pope and this scene in general is designed to make her seem sort of awkward, slovenly, um, mm -hmm. you know, just sort of generally unpleasant, you know, vaguely off kilter. So I almost wonder if her use of a non-typical word there is designed to contribute to that vague sense in the reader that there's something just a little bit off about this person. Sort of upping the uncanniness. Huh. Yeah. Well, if you remember from uh, uh, We the Living, one of the things that that Kira was not unsettled, but found somewhat distasteful, was the close proximity of people made it so that certain things like brushing one's teeth or gargling were clearly heard by everyone instead of being behind closed doors as they more, more decently should be. Hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering if this is a case of Rand saying, okay, folks after the October Revolution didn't have a choice about this. You do. Why are you doing this? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Rand has claimed that, you know, she could present a justification for the precise choice of pretty much every word in Atlas Shrugged. So I suspect if she were still alive and you could get her attention, you know, she could probably give you an explanation of this one as well. Probably. Yeah. Anywho. So uh, how, uh, how does Jim plan to make Dagny a little easier to manage, quote unquote? Yeah. I mean, well, basically, he, he was going to claim that the things that she had done with regards to the San Sebastian line were overstepping her authority. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and undermining you know a policy that had been put in place by you know, the, board. the board and the the president's office. Um, yeah, and Diana's follow up was: given the news about the nationalization, will Jim be able to put his plan for Dagny into action? No, but he's perfectly willing to take credit for her yeah, loss was... preventing procedures. And she, mm-hmm. she shrugged it off um, pretty quickly. It was a little weird. Yeah. yeah very well. Cool. And, and this is a, a classic example of both a, um, I guess I don't quite want to call it a material theft, but you know, it, it's definitely spiritual theft. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, definitely fraud. It, it, it's like he's, you know, he's fighting desperately to punish her for a policy that we can see has basically saved his ass. Mm-hmm. It's like, she, and she has rescued him from the consequences of his own decision without demanding any credit or even acknowledgement for having done so. I think that's, you know, it's like stick a pin in that, that sort of thing's going to be important. So from our perspective at this point, should she have made a scene about it? In other words, not that she was invited to the board meeting, but she makes an appearance. She says, yeah, I remember you called this board meeting because you wanted to discipline me for what I was doing down there. And, uh, gee, I'm apparently the only one in this group that knew they were going to nationalize the road and acted accordingly. I mean, that does seem very atypical of her, but would that have been a better thing for her to have done under the circumstances? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that that's a tough question. I mean, you know, would would it, you know, perhaps have been a better thing for her to do to have not protected Jim from the consequences of his decisions at all, you know, in the hopes of, you know, the board, you know, finding the testicular fortitude to get rid of him, you know. Yeah. But then again, she's she's been acting on this premise for a couple of for at least a couple of years because She's the one that actually took over and finished the Rio Norte line, excuse me, the San Sebastian line. When all of the machinations of the board were producing nothing except ongoing operational losses. Yeah, yeah. Costs and delays, yes. So I I guess what what it comes down to is This is an example of things that she apparently had to learn the hard way. Would would the book have been much shorter, for instance, if she had not helped with the San Sebastian Railway and it ended up bankrupting Dagger Transcontinental, which apparently was well on its way to doing? Yeah, and it could have gotten to the strike much quicker. Can you hear me, by the way? I can hear Greg, yes. Okay, yeah, I had to reconnect. Kyle looks like he's in the process of reconnecting. Yeah, and we lost uh, Rational Ego and uh, Chris Land. 
Mm. Yeah. Also, we lost, we lost the law of identity. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we can't be identified, so. No, there was a guy whose uh, name was A. Yeah, I, I didn't catch the uh, other rational. Rational egoism was his name. He, uh, I clicked that... on his icon, and oh, uh, okay. he has a picture of train tracks going off into the horizon. I think he has a blog. I uh, I don't think he's updated it very much of late. Um, I think he was one of the guys that was part of the objectivist circles hmm. back when everybody had a blog, and uh, they do that once a week. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, Robin, Ron Robin posting. Yeah. Damn it, am I out again? No, no you're, you're still here, Kyle. I'm back? Okay. I, I yeah. You were gone, so for a while there, mm-hmm. I I may have been talking dead to dead air. So well, no, I could generally hear you. It's just at a certain point, you guys started over talking me, and I'm like, okay, I don't think they can hear me anymore. Um, no, we didn't. I did not hear. I did not hear myself talking over you. So yeah, I I was wanting to observe that. Um, I think Dagny and Reardon both have the idea that they don't really need to engage um, the looters, you know, the, the Jim Taggarts of the world, you know, on the political level or the, you know, that, that sort of interpersonal machination level, because they're both convinced that, you know, Jim is incapable of enough destruction, you know, to prevent them from succeeding. Yeah. You know, at some level, they just they can't take him seriously because he's so obviously pathetic. Yeah, and that's uh, it's also a recurring pattern of uh, they do something amazing. Somebody uh, tries to take a shot at them and it doesn't work. And they're like, yeah, it's obvious to everybody that uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. That was kind of pathetic. And they, they completely shrug it off and move on. Yeah. Well, that's it's, it's like they really going they, on. They have this idea that, you know, at some point they're going to you know, commit an act of productive achievement so great that it will just leave the Jim Taggarts and Oren Boyles of the world in the dust. That it, that it will be or, so, it'll so, make it clear so clear and, and yeah. so amazing that, 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 that will, nonsense will yeah, the, go away. The, the yeah. nonsense will go away because everybody will finally learn. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the the older I get, the more um, skeptical I become of that kind of an idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, we we can't really go into the the roots of that without, I think, jumping in effect to the uh, the end of and, the novel in terms of lessons. But... Yeah, we can save it. <laughs> we will not forget. On the other hand, we are kind of living through that today. Yeah. You would, you would think that at some point people would look at, say, the foreign policy of this administration and regardless of their political uh, affiliation go, God, could, could he do anything more stupid? But, uh, I mean, as for example, his retaliation against the Iranian proxies, he basically told Iran when it was going to happen. So well, sure, I mean, it's security theater again 
Yeah, I, right. but it, 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 the thing is, is you know, I uh, I never met him because he was much older than I was. But I had a cousin that was shot down in Vietnam, and the last letter that he sent home was a complaint that they would give the North Vietnamese three days warning before they would strike uh, a target. And if they couldn't move the target, so they were dropping bombs on an empty parking lot, they'd have so many SAM sites uh, set up around it that uh, you'd lose planes going in and coming out. And that's actually what got him. He went into one of those sites and they had SAMs and that's what killed him. Um, You know, so this, I mean, this is typical. It's not only typical, but it's what I would say typical insanity. Why would you do that? What What is your motivation if it isn't? Yes, the, it's, is, it's uh, theater. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and altruism. Um, and, it, and that actually reminds me of a, a quote from Reardon much later in the chapter that I'd wanted to uh, – call to attention so maybe i'll do it now um you know talking about the uh, the anti-dog eat dog rule and uh, colorado you know reardon says um you know all that lunacy is temporary it can't last it's demented mm-hmm. so it has to defeat itself you and i will just have to work a little harder for a while that's all mm-hmm. and when i read that the thing that struck me was reardon sounds like a conservative because all we have to do is show them that this is the way to get things done and they'll change and 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 the you know and and the insanity will stop that the lunacy has to be temporary i mean it you you could pretty much the right idea yeah but uh, but you could pretty much take that statement and apply it to like contemporary conservative reactions to wokeism mm-hmm you know, pretty uh, much it, verbatim. It, in fact, they do say they, they will yeah. eat themselves. Yep, it's demented. It's it has to defeat itself. Um, and Reardon, like the conservatives, is identifying sort of half of the truth. Yes, it's irrational. Therefore, yes, you know, over the long run, it can't work. But... Um, you can't use that as an excuse for not engaging and identifying, you know, and pointing out the exact nature of the irrationality. Yeah, it can still do a hell of a lot of damage. And, well, and, and it'll do more if you're giving it help. Uh, like Rand's yeah. principle of um, the impotence of evil. Right. Well, I mean, and I think conservatives use that argument in part to avoid really engaging with the moral foundations of wokeism because doing that would require that they criticize altruism and they won't do that. No, they, they would not be capable of going there. And, you know, in the same sort of way here, you know, Reardon is doing a premature dismissal. He's, he understands that there's something fundamentally wrong here, but he doesn't understand exactly what it is. And because of that, while the statement that he's making is, I think, technically correct, and yes, that's the best kind of correct, um, <laughs> it is, he's not really in a position to say it with full understanding. Not yet. And he's going to pay for that. 
Mm-hmm. All right, maybe uh, pushing ahead. Next section, Jim Taggart speaks to the board of Taggart Transcontinental, reassuring them about the nationalization of the San Sebastian line. Um, yeah, one, he did take credit, like we noted before, uh, but also suddenly he becomes competent and good at his job where his job is manipulating people's minds and soothing them and saying all the right things politically. Well, and, and also uh, laying the blame off on other people. Oh, he's yeah. a consummate uh, performer in that regard. Yeah, he's consummate. stealing credit, he's shifting blame. Um, well, I would and, also and note this why is... Why they accept it? This is arguably the first time that we've seen Jim Taggart you know, really operating in sort of his milieu. Yeah, being doing his, uh, him being the Barracuda. He's, yeah, he's doing, do, doing it. Doing yeah. his thing. Um, um, so the board seems happy enough. What, because what's... they won't have to take responsibility. He's already made all the recommendations. All they have to do is endorse him. So that means that, they're at, that their ass isn't hanging in the breeze. Right. Um, they, mm-hmm. Yep. They just, you know, they they can point to him. It's like, you know, he is in effect taking full responsibility mm-hmm. by, by making the recommendations. Although it's the same kind of responsibility that Janet Reno took. Yes. Yeah. Full responsibility. Yeah. But yeah. no consequences. Yep. Only in one certain novel I'm thinking of did she take full responsibility. Yes, but not not of her own volition. No. All right. So um, yeah. then that yeah. transitions. Oh, yeah. Sorry. One one other you know little thing to flag. You know the the board of directors, you know, are not thinking of what they would have to do, but of what they would have to say to the men they represented. Mm-hmm. You know, once again, you see the orientation not to reality but to the minds of others. Yeah. This yeah. this entire scene is all it's, secondhanded. It's all secondhanded. Which, yeah. Very real. Okay, so, um, oh, damn it. Yeah. Uh, and then in the next scene between Jim and Oren Boyle, we get to see some of the limitations of the second-handed approach. Uh, go on. Well, you know, because in our earlier, in the, the earlier discussions about the San Sebastian mines, we know, you know, Jim and, and Boyle we're not looking at any of the facts about the mines, the, the mineralogical research or, or any of that stuff. They were relying purely on their assumptions about Francisco Danconia's mind, what Francisco Danconia knew and what Francisco was attempting to accomplish. Yeah. They, they, uh, they had a completely they had second handed approach to making the investment decision. And yeah. You know, so now they're, you know, in the position of, um, you know, oh shit, you know, we, you know, this thing's been nationalized, you know, Francisco's lost a big pile of his money too. And he's never lost in these things. We can trust that he's going to be, uh, in the fray. Yeah. You know, did he, did he make a mistake? Um, you know, what, what's going on? You know, they, they have no understanding because they just had a lot of assumptions about what was going on in his mind, but no actual knowledge. 
Yeah. And, uh, but they, they, they do stick with their assumptions essentially. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah, still yeah. brilliant and he still has a lot of skin he's, in the game. So yep, we'll he's trust still, him he's still brilliant. Him. He's still, he's still gotta be up to something. You know, yeah. You know, we just have to make sure that it's, whatever he's up to, you know, gets which, us out of the hole along with him. Perhaps it's a little bit too much of a spoiler, but I do think it's delicious that it, it, if Danconia is doing this consciously, he has found their complete weakness. They they are not reality oriented. It's enough yeah. that they know his reputation and the fact that he has skin in the game. Which which is something that we will begin to understand in the next chapter. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So then it gets really sad. Uh, the National Alliance of Railroads passes the anti-dog-eat-dog rule, supposedly to eliminate destructive competition among railroads. In fact, however, the rule aims to prevent Dan Conway's excellent Phoenix Durango from competing with Taggart Transcontinental in Colorado. Afterwards, Jim Taggart meets with Oren Boyle and he gloats to Dagny. Yeah. And uh, next section, uh, more of the same. Uh, yeah. Well, it's Fallout, where Dagny talks with uh, Dan Conway, mm -hmm. and he and and says, "You need to uh, fight this," and he refuses. He's he's been morally disarmed. Yeah. Did you notice the similarity in style um, between the way this rule was passed by the association and the way that the management of Taggart Transcontinental decided to build the San Sebastian line? Uh, no, go, go on. Yeah. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Um, you know, very no, vague oh, generalities. Yeah, it would really they, happen. It's all vague and woozy. It, it, it's all vague this. world generalities. Uh, no uh, hardcore factual discussions. Um, and, uh, you know, it seemed to be one of those things where a lot of people didn't really want it to happen, but nobody stood up to make it not happen. Yes. You know, because everybody was just sort of systematically, it's like, well, this, this seems like the right thing to do, even though, you know, pragmatically it's not. Again, it, it looks like people being morally disarmed. They can't say anything and it gets ahead of steam and happens. Yeah, the same, but it's it's the same methodology mm -hmm. in both cases. Yeah. Um, let's see. Core questions here include, why does Dagny want Conway to fight the anti-doggy dog rule, even though he's, comp he's, he's a competitor? Why does he refuse? Well, I think the reason she wanted him to fight comes down to uh, the same thing about... Uh, uh, that German Lutheran minister, you know, first they came for so-and-so and then they came for so-and-so and I didn't do anything because I wasn't so-and-so. And, -so. and I think, uh, on a certain Dagnia's... level, I think she, she also thinks that there really is a harmony of interests among um, the producers. Well, you know, she says explicit, she says explicitly there's enough 
there's a there's enough business down there I, yeah. for both. She's of like, yeah. I'll, I'll well, beat you if I have to, but I think well, there's going to yeah, be lots that, of business. Yeah, yeah, but that's not really the fundamental point because she also says very clearly that you know, if there hadn't been enough room in Colorado for both of them, she was going to go down there and drive him out by outcompeting yeah. him. And if she had done that, she would have broken him and never looked back and not given a damn. Well, she would be like a worthy fight. Yeah. She would respect him. It would be a worthy fight. Yeah. She she wants the worthy, productive yeah. fight. Yeah. But she's like, you know, I, you know, she's like, I want, you know, to hammer you into the ground. It, it but I like... don't want to hammer you into the ground this way. Yeah. It's, it's like the <laughs> tennis player who goes to the tournament he's like i don't want to lose i don't want to win via a buy i want to crush you on a good day mm-hmm. yeah it's like i want you to put out your best effort and then i want to crush you as you have your best yeah, and, and i want to show that i'm be- still better than that yeah. <laughs> which mm. is a fine attitude <laughs> it's like yeah and i don't want to i don't want to win by default okay so and um, i mean she she says very clearly at a certain point you know i don't want to be a looter yeah <laughs> I, I think she actually used those words yeah she did literally yeah um you know she's like i you know, it's kind of like the the thing you say about how annoyed you are that you know today's putative anti-racists require you to think about racial issues it's like fuck you for putting me in this position yeah yeah I'm not a racist. I don't want to be a racist. I don't want to have to. I don't deal want to with pay any. Atta- I don't want to pay any attention to this shit. I don't want to. Yeah. yeah, but it's like fuck you for you know requiring me to waste my attention. Well, on yeah. this nothing burger of an issue. Well, it, it's like uh, yeah, it's it's forcing. It's like uh, you are you assholes are raging racists, and now you're making me have to attend to that. I'd yeah. rather just wash my hands of you. Mm-hmm. Or I guess another modern example is, you know, God damn it, stop making me defend Trump. Yeah. (laughs) It's like there's plenty of things to not like about him. There's plenty of things to not like about the man. There's a huge list of legitimate things you could be criticizing him over and you insist on just going for the... ah, Uh, The bullshit uh, that's been The bullshit that requires me to oppose you because you make no goddamn sense. Yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and yeah, there's a lot of injustice on this front where it's like, yeah, uh, uh, we, well, we can and, pull back from that rat hole. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even in, in the context of the novel, you know, Dagny gets an ass chewing from Ellis Wyatt. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, of this. Let's see. That's the very next section here. It's like, uh, yeah, he comes, delivers his ultimatum. Uh, you guys are going to provide the service for uh, the, for my businesses, and uh, and she essentially accepts a beating without protest, uh, verbal beating, mm-hmm. because I, I think she's granting his context of knowledge is like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a part of this company, and yeah. from from his perspective, yeah, there's no, I, I can't really argue that. Yeah. As a representative of Tag- Transcontinental. Yeah, and, and and a high level one. Uh, instead, mm-hmm. she focuses on what she can do, which is uh, I will just take care of it, and he will see, uh, you know, deeds not words. Yeah, you know, are we going to talk at all about 
the nature of Conway's reasoning for not fighting. Yes. And that was a, an earlier question of wh- why is he refusing to fight? It's I, it's because he's morally disarmed. He accepts the premise of these uh, these looters, uh, the majority rule, uh, the need to uh, support all of them. Uh, the, the notion is like, oh well, yeah, maybe it would focus is, on me. Is there, but they would never actually do that. Yeah, yeah, is, is, the, is there an implied criticism of the ideology of majoritarian democracy in uh, here? I think, I think so. there yeah. is, and uh, also a little bit of um, uh, context context free virtue. He gave his word. He promised. Yeah. And now they're using it against him. And he's like, well, I promised. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to yeah, spin around on that a little deeper. Yeah. I mean, he's he is being hamstrung and destroyed by his own virtue. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any other characters in the book who were seem to be in a situation like yeah, that? There, there, there might be uh, <laughs> a few cases. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm thinking in particular, I mean, in the previous chapter, you know, didn't Reardon get called out, you know, pretty much explicitly for, you know, having given his word to Lillian in the sense of his marriage vow? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and she's doing nothing but torturing him. <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, and it, but it's like all of, all of her leverage over him is coming from, you know. His virtue. His, yeah. his, his honor, his integrity. And in the same sort of way here, you know, the, um, the railroad association, there's no legal teeth to this. No, it was just a self, um, it, uh, what was it? Uh, Vol- self-regulation. Voluntary, voluntary, voluntary self-regulation. self-regulation. You know, if, yeah. if Conway had, uh, you know, with, said basically, screw this, withdrawn from the association and, you know, dared them to go to court over it. You know, as she said, you know, he, he could have fought, he might've been able to win, um, but, um, instead, you know, he allows his own, you know, sense of honor and integrity to be used against him as a weapon because he gave his word. Mm-hmm. You know, in effect, unthinkingly. Yeah. So are we going to, uh, are we going to talk about uh, Dagny's almost epiphany? Go um, on. Yeah. Uh, tell us more. They stood facing each other. He looked as if, for the first time, he was not afraid of her. He was gloating. The event meant something to him much beyond the destruction of a competitor. It was not a victory over Dan Conway, but over her. She did not know why or in what manner, but she felt certain that he knew. For the flash of one instant, she thought that here, before her, in James Taggart, and in that which made him smile, was a secret she had never suspected, and it was crucially important that she learned to understand it. But the, fl- but the thought flashed and vanished. Hmm. So close, and yet so far. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's almost like this is the principle behind the Dean moment. Mm. except she didn't articulate it whereas Rourke did and even though he didn't know what it was at least he had a te- at least he had a label for it she doesn't bother mm. to put a label on it yeah it's like there's something there but Dagny is 
so focused on action in the world that she often turns away from these sort of moments of intellectual insight because, you know, she's got shit she needs to do. Yeah. You know, because at a, a certain level, you know, she, because she doesn't take the looters really seriously, uh, she just kind of views them as cluttering up the world. Um, you know, she, uh, she thinks that the way to beat them is through action. And, you know, so rather than pay attention to them and what motivates them and what their true goals are, she goes off to take action to try to oppose them. Action is what she's kind of doing here. Yeah. It's like she has to go talk to Dan Conway and convince him to, uh, to fight. Mm-hmm. She's going to do something. Uh, yeah. Which you know, reminds me of you know, a great scene from the, the TV show House, uh, MD, if you guys remember that. Oh, heck yeah. yeah. It was oh, one, yeah. Of my fav- one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, there was a, a scene in one of the later seasons where... Um, I think Cuddy's mom is in the hospital and she's suffering from, you know, one of the mysterious illnesses and, you know, she's, you know, effectively, you know, going into a fit and dying, you know, in the room, um, you know, and, and Cuddy is there and house is there and he's just kind of, you know, staring at her intently, you know, and thinking, you know, while, you know, Cuddy's mom is, you know, spasming out and, you know, Cuddy is naturally freaking, uh, freaking out at this. And at one point she yells at house and, you know, she, she yells, do something. And without even moving, he just says, I am, (laughs) you know, as as he stands there because, you know, what he's doing is, you know, reasoning out the differential diagnostic decision tree, trying to figure out what's actually going on here because he knows that if he doesn't get that understanding, action doesn't help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Action doesn't matter. Well, well, it could matter. It could matter in a negative matter, sense. But, but that if, if, you, if you want your action to be effective, you have to understand what you're doing. And... In a very real sense, Dagny is trying to act to oppose the Jim Taggarts of the world without understanding what they are really doing. Hmm. So. What do you know? Uh, you can't find things of value in modern entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I always counted that as a very worthy show. Um, got a little soap operatic towards the end, but yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the big finish. Maybe I drifted off right at the end there. Hmm. Um, okay. So getting near the end here, uh, uh, Reardon and Dagny negotiate terms for the sale of the rails made of Reardon metal for the Rio Norte line. They discuss the meaning of their work. Um, let's see. 
what do Dagny and Hank think of Jim and his friends in Washington? Why, why don't Dagny and Hank think that the economic boom in Colorado can be stopped? Yeah. Or actually, here's, here's the most important spot, I thought, in this entire section. Um, why does Hank say that he and Dagny are blackguards without spiritual values? Does Hank have spiritual values? And uh, why does his claim worry Dagny, but only briefly? <clears throat> well, because... He, I mean, I, I could see I can see this from several different perspectives. In, in some ways, it's it's arguable that he's doing the same thing that the uh, deplorables us have done by taking taking on the moniker that, uh, that Hillary Clinton laid out there, and then it, and basically turning it back on her. It's a it's a rejection of her morality in judging us i i don't hear the humor in it though um like he's no, actually embracing that, well, it humorously because, though you know it, it's exactly I, th I think the thing is, is that what reardon reardon's view is that the conventional moral perspective is in fact moral and he understands that he doesn't share it and he is not concerned particularly about the fact that he doesn't share it, but he does still consider it to be moral. Which goes back to his being uh, so a little like Conway in, in accepting something important of theirs. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Carl. Oh, no, I was just going to make a slight pun. Uh, so he's beyond good and evil? Uh. Something like that. Um, <laughs> you know, he... Or, or at least, you know, he, you know, he sees himself as being declared evil by a moral perspective that he acknowledges as a moral perspective, simply not his. Um, and he's, but he's not saying it's, it's wrong or bad. Right. He's, he's not, he's not saying, yeah, that, that their moral perspective is in fact false and should be rejected. Um, Whereas the deplorables in modern day America are in fact rejecting the morality being promulgated by, well, well, at, uh, at a certain level it's being rejected. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. They, they are. Yeah. I mean, the deplorable types are doing a standard sort of slur reversal. Yeah. Right. Which is, is very, very common for uh, you know a derogated group to adopt a slur directed against them and turn it into a badge of honor. You know the gay community has done this many times. Uh, and yeah. I've noticed a, a a huge subculture adopting the N word mm. as their own as a badge, yeah. or the embrace. Yeah, I'm a gun nut. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So yeah, you're right. It it is a fairly common yeah. pattern. Right. Uh, but it, I think the difference there is, you know, it's one thing to sort of adopt a derogatory label, you know, and turn it around into a badge of honor. It's another thing to accept a conceptual classification of yourself. 
And that seems more like what Reardon's doing. What, and that's more like what Reardon's doing. Um, you know, to my mind, that's sort of analogous to, you know, in, uh, in the debates over transgenderism, um, people who want to make up additional pronouns or change the way that, uh, you know, gendered pronouns are applied to them argue that it's a matter of courtesy and make the point that, you know, if a person says they want to be referred to by a particular name, you know, you don't generally say, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, you, you refer to them the way they want to be referred to, right? Um, Depends. And, and that therefore, you know, the pronoun thing is, is the same way. But it's a similar kind of uh, confusing the difference between a label and a conceptual classification. Yeah, a, a name. It doesn't matter what name I give. Uh, I use for Kyle. If Kyle has a middle name and he prefers, I use this other middle name. Okay, um, mm -hmm. Kyle's now Bill or something. That's different than um, messing with the conceptual classification I use for um, the sexes. Yeah, mm -hmm. gendering that yeah. I that's a part what? of the language. The that, one that is a matter like of saying, labeling. Why can't you, you know, be polite uh, and refer to this as orange when it's, you know, when, when it, you perceive it as blue? Purple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um, like, well, that's not about politeness. That's about conceptual uh, well, clarity. I mean, I'm going to go a step further and say that's about thought control. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ultimately, they're messing up our ability to think for a purpose. Well, and that's uh, what Walter, I think I sent it out a number of months ago. Walter Hudson made that point about the transgenders. Is that they that they weren't interested in civility? What they were interested in is imposing their—I don't remember his exact term—but is imposing, you know, their crazy view of reality on others, who who knew, you know, who knew what reality was, and were being forced to forego their understanding of morality for some sort of false civility. And he basically says, "I'm not going to do that." Well, we don't do that with any other uh, conceptual classification like uh, this is round, that is red, over there is a car. Why would I let somebody uh, forbid me from doing that in, in this category? And, and we, don't, we also don't do it for other cases of people who are, um, uh, are dysphoric or confused about something. We don't say, you know, to somebody well, who I mean, it, thinks it's that they're, not even, they're fat you know, and they're not. We don't say, oh, I, yeah, I think you you're just a, yourself. You're just at a, too micro level there. Nobody gets to tell me how to conceptualize my own experience but me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's where I started. <laughs> yeah. So I agree violently. Yeah. But I just, I don't think you need to make any arguments beyond that. It's like when you start coming and telling me how I must form and apply concepts, you are attempting to coerce my thought, period. End of story. You know, you are, you are engaging in literal attempts at thought control. And that is, it is. It's, that is not to say that if I was like, oh, maybe I'm, um, it happens all the time here talking with you guys. Maybe I'm not thinking well about something and you will try to teach me something or persuade me. Well, that's me controlling my thoughts, not you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can present an argument, but as soon as your argument involves an appeal to, well, uh, certainly an appeal or to force, force, you know, or, yeah, a, appeals to, um, 
you know, emotion or psychological pressure. Yeah. Anytime somebody's <laughs> the moment I don't agree with you fully, I become phobic. Yeah, that's manipulation. Pick any of these terms. Uh, they, they, they just toss phobic on the end of it. If you don't agree fully with something that someone just said, and it's like, no, I don't have an irrational fear of whatever the hell you were just talking about. I don't agree with you. That's all. Uh, it's like you, you, keep, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to uh, yeah, terminology that, you know, slurs that are getting turned into badges of honor, I think istophobe. Yes. <laughs> An istophobic phobophobe. <laughs> Phoby McPhobic. Phoby <laughs> Dick. So, um, yeah. It's like there's, anyway. there's a lot of outrages in the world. Why don't we focus on those instead of making up new ones? Um, but yeah, right. I think that that's part of the significance of, you know, Reardon calling himself a blackguard is that it's, it's a moral conceptual evaluation rather than just, you know, yeah. you know, and, owning, and, owning a um, slur. So yeah, it, it is a little jarring to see him just adopt it and accept it. And, um, but Dagny, Dagny set it aside. Did you guys catch that? Yeah. Well, and again, I think part of what's going on with Dagny there is her prioritization over action. Mm. You know, just as with Jim, she gets a glimpse of something in Reardon that she thinks is wrong. But she sees that it's not affecting what Reardon does. Yeah. And, and so that's what she thinks is important. Yeah. So she dismisses it. That's fair. Um understandable not correct but understandable that's interesting seeing the uh uh what, what the author giving uh, them these growth opportunities <laughs> i guess you could say mm -hmm. uh, uh not perfect characters that are uh, unchanging otherwise well there's uh, not going to be much of a story yes um all right well maybe to wrap up the chapter in previous chapters, we focused uh, at least a little while on how uh, the, the title of the chapter always had a, a concrete and an abstract um, mm. aspect. How about this one, the immovable movers? Well, I think there are, uh, at the very least, there are two physical movers in this chapter. Three. Um, the Phoenix Durango and... Um, uh, Taggart Transcontinental, and in different ways, both oh, of them mover. are gotcha. mm -hmm. blocked from moving. You know, in mm -hmm. this chapter, the the Phoenix Durango, in effect, by politics, and Taggart Transcontinental by physical reality. Yeah, yes. interesting. I didn't even think of so that. I was thinking in terms of the people, not the institutions. Yeah, but the actual institutions. You know, the yeah. the literal railroads as as movers. But then we, we do have um, the the more abstract view of, of the people. Yes. Um, I mean, Conway, you know, is, you know, a mover who, you know, is no longer, you know, in effect, movable because he's lost his motive power. The first two words he, of the chapter. He, he is literally an immovable mover, mm. an unmoving mover. Yes, at this point. Um, 
you know, because he's been stripped of his motive power. Um, hmm. Any others? Maybe um, it's um. Well, um, you, but on on that basis, uh, if you look at uh, page one seventy four, she uses the same analogy, a motor, to describe Hank Reardon's office. The room looked like a motor, a motor held fast within, within the glass case of broad windows, but she noticed one astonishing detail, a vase of jade that stood on top of a filing cabinet. Yeah, well, and you see, um, I think a, the, the productive people here are continuing to move in reality. They are continuing to act. Uh, precisely because they are unmoved by the moral condemnations that are directed against them. So is that the immovable so part of, that they're talking yeah, about? A different sense of immovable. A so I, I think it. that's what I was looking for because it's like, yeah, that, that's not, it's not, nothing before was hitting it quite right. These are the immovable movers. They're immovable under uh, that kind of emotional duress while they continue moving um, in achievement. Hmm. Yeah. But not sadly moving in understanding. No. But we have hope. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm going to suggest that we maybe drop the exploration of the um the physical uh meaning of um chapter uh headings for the next chapter. Yeah. Oh, the climax of the Danconia. We we do mark this as a family friendly channel, so yeah, we'll. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. With that, we can we can uh, put a pin in the episode. Yeah. Uh, or I guess just to um, uh, actually, before you put a complete pin in it, in terms of the whole movable movers thing, we should probably look at the last line of the chapter. Oh, uh, I don't have it right in front of me. Let's see. Weird and speaking, Dagny, he said, whatever we are, it's we who move the world, and it's we who'll pull it through. Mm -hmm. So he is explicitly identifying sort of the productive axis, you know, you know, the people like Dagny, Reardon, Ellis Wyatt, as the movers, the ones who move the world. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, at the same time, um, the events that happen in this chapter are clearly being driven by something else. Oh, here's a, a different, a slight, <laughs> a tangential connection. Um, they are, uh, he just identified them as the movers who get things done for the world. There are other movers who have been retiring. These movers are not retiring. They're immovable on that front. There's, they don't see any need to do it. They would not do it. She loves the railroad. He loves making metal. They're going to save the world. They're moving the world. The other guys tapped out. Yeah. So I think this underscores the sense of immovable that you were focusing on before of uh, they're uh, 
not movable in a certain sense. Yeah. Hmm. I'm thinking that could be what it really is. I'll go with that. 